Well, let's turn our attention to our topic, which is worship, evangelical, and embodied. And this is week one, believe it or not, but it's the second week of week one because we only made it partway through last week. And I want to pick up there. As I mentioned, we have some fresh handouts because I realized I got over halfway, which I think is remarkable. We got like 75% of the way, so there, there's some time today to add some additional things that I had cut initially. And so we'll pick up on page eight, uh, but to remind us of where we've been, I've been suggesting that our entry point into corporate worship is the gospel. And so we need to understand the gospel. We need to allow our corporate worship to be shaped by the gospel and to be filled with the content of the gospel. And that's all well and good until we ask, what is the gospel? And I think we have sometimes, even within conservative Christians, different definitions or articulations of what the gospel is. So I expressed a bit of a concern last week that in our attempt to give clear explanations and gospel presentations, we truncate the gospel and we reduce it to some bare component parts. And we've kind of gone through this process of picking and choosing what's the bare essential of the gospel. And in doing so, we neglect to give the whole gospel. And I think we all recognize that the part that's often retained is the piece of the gospel that emphasizes personal eschatology. That is, what will happen to me when I die? And so we hear gospel presentations like this. The bad news is that you're a sinner on your way to hell. The good news is that Jesus died to save you. And to make this personal, let's read John 3.16 and put your name in there instead of the world. So for God so loved you. And, and it, even if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have died for you. And, and the hope that you now have in Christ is that you'll go to heaven if you die tonight. You can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Well, I think that there are some good things about that, but it becomes so individualized and disconnected from the larger redemptive story that I kind of wonder whether or not that's the gospel at all. And as we'll come to see later on, I'm going to make a suggestion that this presentation of the gospel is the kind that brings individuals into the church for a very short amount of time, and then they realize that this isn't a big enough gospel, and they depart either for a rejection of the Christian faith altogether or for a kind of transition into a high church tradition. We'll talk about more about why that is down the road. So I've been trying to help us think about the gospel more broadly and, and have a more thick understanding of the gospel that connects the gospel message all the way to the beginning of creation and extending all the way to the new heaven and the new earth. So that's where we were last week. I want to pick up on page eight in our notes, following this guy, Michael Bird, who's an Australian theologian who talks about different contours of the gospel articulated in scripture. And I think that if we neglect these contours of the gospel, we have a skeletal gospel that doesn't have the meat in, on, on the bones that gets us really very far down the road. So let's begin with that first bullet point. The gospel proclaimed by the gospels or by the apostles is intimated in the Old Testament. 
Our understanding of the gospel needs to include the recognition that the gospel is not a modern innovation or merely an individually oriented message. Instead, the gospel is a continuation of God's redemptive work recorded in the Old Testament. So the gospel cannot be conceived of outside the framework of the Old Testament because Jesus's victory is only explainable in terms of the promises and covenants recorded in the Old Testament. So I want to suggest that if our presentation and understanding of the gospel could be made without a single reference to the Old Testament, then we are on the verge of heresy. In fact, there are heretics who say you don't need the Old Testament anymore because the gospel is just in the New Testament. And if you keep traveling down that road, you get an angry God of the Old Testament and a nice God of the New Testament and that sort of thing. So we need to have an understanding of the gospel that includes the Old Testament. Now, before we go further, I mentioned that our corporate worship ought to be shaped by the gospel. So where these features of the gospel show up, they ought to also show up in our corporate worship. So it should be no surprise that we employ the Old Testament in our corporate worship gatherings. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we have decided to include a reading from the Old Testament in every morning service. Well, it's because the gospel can't be disconnected from the Old Testament. Bullet point number two, the gospel is the message of the kingdom of God. Our understanding of the gospel must take into account the kingdom of God. And in fact, as you read the gospels, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. So if you were caught unawares, someone might ask you the question, what did Jesus care about the most? And, and you might think, uh, getting people to heaven. Well, that's not what Jesus's main concern was. Instead, his main concern was to declare the kingdom of God. So our understanding of the gospel needs to have a category for Jesus's teaching and the gospel being the message that the reign and rule of God has broken into the, the present. So the gospel is not just about the eschatological future, but it's about the here and now as well. And in fact, that's what we would expect from our Lord who cared a lot about healing people and who affirmed the goodness of this present world, but who also declared that his kingdom is all-encompassing. So it doesn't matter that there's a Roman authority still. God reigns and God rules. It doesn't matter that the the devil can approach Christ in the wilderness and offer him the kingdoms of the world because they're already his. So we need to have this category of our gospel understanding that includes the kingdom of God breaking into the present. Now, this, I think, is a good guard against the second great awakening revivalistic sort of preaching that just says, get on fire for Jesus and your greatest hope is in heaven someday. Instead, we have the understanding that Christ cares about this world and this life now, and that his kingdom is already here, though of course not yet fully present. Third bullet point here, the gospel includes the story of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Um, I, I don't think until recent years, I included the ascension of our Lord as part of the gospel. And I I think that's problematic. Uh, How often do we think about the Christ who is risen now? This Christ risen in bodily form, alive, who 
God's presence is mediated by the Spirit? Well, this leads us towards a Trinitarian conception of the gospel that I think is really important. But we need to remember that this gospel is not just a propositional account of how to get to heaven. So this isn't a 12-step plan to float on a cloud when you get hit by a car on your way home today. Instead, it's the gospel story of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to embody this story and to inhabit the story of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Now, what I want to stress here then is that if the gospel is a story, it's a story that should be told. So the the bare presentation of the gospel cannot be reduced to a formula or a few propositions, but the story needs to be told. So I commented about this last week. If you just finished reading a really good book or watching a really good movie and you told someone you were really psyched about this and they asked you what it's all about, well, you would have to begin telling parts of the story. Well, well, it's about this guy who was approached by this whatever, and, and there was this challenge he went through. You, you wouldn't say anything about this story in just simple propositional terms. This is a story about how love is important to humanity. Well, we might include that in there, but, but we have to tell the story to get the story across. So my point is that a propositional account of the gospel is not the, the central core of it, but it's a thin kind of fleeting edition of it. And so we need a narrative gospel because that's what we're given. Now we're given different ways to express this gospel narrative. One of them is actually through the Lord's Supper. Another one is through baptism. And so we need to incorporate these things as acts of worship. There are others as well, but I want to just lean into the fact that it's a gospel narrative, a redemptive story. And so our communication of the gospel is going to find itself in redemptive narratival terms. Does that make sense? Okay. I, I think you're all tracking with what I'm saying, um, but I, I worked at this camp, Christian camp, for like five summers, and, and we kept this leading a child to Christ evangelism session, and it, it was just proposition one, uh, you know, proposition two. It was just kind of that sort of thing, and that's what I grew up with, In the climax of it was ask Jesus into your heart so you can know you go to heaven. Well, I think that there were some good things about that, but again, I'm concerned that it's so truncated that it's not a gospel that lasts. The next bullet point here is that the gospel announces the status of Jesus as the son of David, son of God, and Lord. So in other words, our identification of Jesus is an important part of the declaration of the gospel. And I think it's one that's often overlooked. We often talk a lot about us in just one aspect of Jesus and his work, which is his death on the cross, but I think there's more than that. So both his status and his aims are important parts of the gospel. So Martin Luther argued this, the gospel is a story about Christ, God's and David's son, who died and was raised and is established as Lord. This is the gospel in a nutshell, and I assure you, if a person fails to grasp this understanding of the gospel, he will never be able to be illuminated in the scripture, nor will he receive the right foundation. So we need to have a right conception of who Jesus is, and, and that conception includes Jesus not just as Savior, who gets you out of hell, but Lord, who is the commander and master of your life. This also 
forces us to identify Jesus in terms of the gospel narratives, in terms of who he is, and recognizing that those are historical narratives. So it guards against us creating our own conception of Jesus, one that's a Republican Jesus or a Democrat Jesus, a white Jesus or a black Jesus, but instead the Jesus who's the son of David, the son of God. Now as a brief sidebar here, I I am not wholly opposed to some of these paintings of Jesus that have Jesus as white or black or Middle Eastern. I don't think that's great, but it's not the worst thing either. And I think it's just a tilting of the hat towards, we, we just want to see Jesus for us. So I understand what's going on there, but I think we need to be careful against creating a Jesus in our own image instead of allowing ourselves to enter into his redemptive call and being conformed into his image. Next bullet point here, salvation is the chief benefit of the gospel. And I want to go on to broaden our conception of what salvation is. So it's not just salvation from from hell, but more broad than that. So this idea appears to give credence to a truncated form of the gospel that I've already talked about. However, the words used for salvation in Hebrew and Greek are broad and include healing, forgiveness, restoration, rescue from danger, and eternal life. If we look at the end of the biblical story, salvation could be expressed as sharing in the new heaven and the new earth that awaits God's people. The scripture contains rich and varied images that describe salvation, including things like forgiveness of sin, justification, reconciliation, adoption, redemption, renewal, cleaning, and much more. But at the center of salvation is the promise that God in Christ and through the Holy Spirit ends the alienation and hostility between himself and his creatures so that he draws them into a new relationship with him that will last eternally. So this word salvation doesn't show up for the first time in the New Testament and doesn't show up primarily in terms of salvation from hell. In the New Testament, more often it shows up in terms of salvation from sin and sin's power, but it occurs in the Old Testament as well. And I remember reading things like reading the Psalms growing up and identifying phrases like the Lord is my salvation and these sort of things that were uttered by the Old Testament prophets and, and writers like David. And I remember asking a Bible teacher about that and they were like, well, this, is, this kind of salvation is totally different than the New Testament salvation. So they're, they're just different things altogether. And I think that's wrong. I, I think that the salvation talked about in the Old Testament and the salvation attributed to the Lord in the Psalms is just a part of the larger redemptive saving story that we see in the Bible. And I don't think we should try to make a hard break between our experience of salvation and their experience of salvation. There are hermeneutical keys that will help us, primarily remembering which covenant we're in. So, so it will keep us from falling into the Joel Osteen prosperity gospel, Jesus is always going to heal you sort of a message. Well, we recognize that there was a, a physical form of the established kingdom in Israel. And so we shouldn't be surprised that salvation entailed the destruction of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous in um, military terms and in, in, in miraculous healings. Well, in the new covenant, we understand that there's this already not yet form of the kingdom. And so there are, there are types of vindication of the righteous and judgment of the wicked that await the final day. 
And there are kinds of healing that await the final day and that are promised not in this life, but in the resurrection. Nevertheless, I think there's greater continuity between our salvation and the Old Testament language of salvation than we might tend to give credit. So it's more broad than that. And if we can conceive of it that way, that salvation includes reconciliation and redemption and restoration, it's a kind of salvation that includes not just me as an individual, but a larger humanity, a new humanity that's being made in Christ. And if we track with the biblical story, we'll find that as goes Christ's new humanity, so goes the creation. So this is a kind of redemption and restoration that includes not just me and you, but our entire planet, like this earth, in, in our earth, uh, like tangible, physical, as opposed to our world system. So I'll go on to argue that our world system is destroyed, but that the world, this planet, is actually never destroyed, um, though I know that that is somewhat controversial. So if, if we're tracking here, then, if our worship is to be evangelical, that is, guided and formed by the gospel, I think that our worship needs to be more thick and deep than just a handful of songs and a sermon and then departure. There, there needs to be a full gospel orbedness, if that's a way of saying it, to our corporate worship. And... Um, as we go, as we talk about what's included in worship down the road, I just want us to think about the fact that if the gospel is broader and thicker than what we might naturally imagine, then perhaps the elements in our corporate worship services need to be broader and thicker than what we might imagine as well. So they may include more than just singing songs and a sermon. And in fact, we're going to experience some of that today. You know, in the, our Old Testament reading, in a formal corporate confession of sin and assurance of pardon, these things are part of the gospel. The gospel gives you assurance of pardon. And so we want that incorporated into our worship services as well. So I, I don't want to get ahead of myself in this series because we're going to talk about some of these pieces. But from the start, I want you to start to think about the implications of a big gospel for a big worship service. Not big in the sense of lights and fog, but, but big in the sense of communicating the redemptive narrative. All right, let me pause there to see if there are any questions or points for discussion before we move on to the embodied nature of worship. Okay, I'm not seeing any major, you know, disagreement or anything at this point. But if you have questions along the way, ask. And I, I think that there will be some good points to talk about down the road here. Okay, so why embodied? Why are we saying that worship needs to be evangelical and embodied? Well, I think that one of the debilitating features of this truncated gospel that I've been referring to is that salvation lies merely in the realm of the spiritual, that you'll go to heaven when you die. And one of the tragic features of that focus is that it essentially eliminates God's redemption of the earth and it minimizes the significance of Christ's incarnation. So if you can conceive of corporate worship worshiping a Christ who was not raised bodily, then I think there need to be some adjustments to our worship practices. 
we in fact would say that someone who denies the bodily resurrection of the Lord is a heretic. Well, I think, unfortunately, that we can tend to allow our worship practices to tilt in a direction that says it doesn't matter if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead or not. And in fact, that leads to a divide between the spiritual and the physical that demeans the physical and elevates the spiritual. And and then down the road, what that leads to is a distinction between the sacred and the secular that I think is really unhelpful. And again, this is an introduction to some ideas that will get fleshed out in our later lessons, but I think we need to avoid the spiritual-physical divide that makes worship just about an elevation of the spiritual and a rejection of the physical, including our own embodiment. And one of the things that keeps this separation going is this bad vision of the afterlife as eternity as a disembodied soul. Um, and that's problematic. That thinking's misguided for several reasons. The first here, number one, is that the distinction between the material and the immaterial, or the physical and the spiritual, is a really late convention. So this is modern thinking that's influenced by the Enlightenment and scientific rationalism. Okay, so prior to the Enlightenment, scientific analytical language and thought was not considered the most true way of speaking of something. Instead, metaphorical and poetic and apocalyptic language was used because we understand that truth can't be boiled down to scientific analytical terms. But we wanted, in the Enlightenment, to have something that we could grasp onto and take charge of. And what that did, I think, is propagate this idea that we can separate the physical and the spiritual, and we can take charge of the physical, and then we relegate the spiritual to the um, Christian, you know, transcendent, something other, and the future. So right now we live in the realm of the physical, but we're going to discard it in favor of the immaterial as we escape from these broken awful bodies and float, float on a cloud forever. But what this is, is a combination of enlightenment thinking and Neoplatonism that says that the body is evil and the spirit is good. And they had different reasons pre-enlightenment for thinking that, but it was caught up and supported, I think, in enlightenment thinking. But, but my point here is that prior to the Enlightenment and setting aside this pagan way of thinking, early Christians did not have very much of a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. It's almost like they're one in the same. This explains, for instance, why in the Gospels you have individuals coming to Jesus who are thought of as being sinful, and that's why they have a particular physical ailment. Well, it's because these spiritual and physical worlds were really joined together in an inseparable way. Um, You could think of it as the the physical being porous to where the, the spiritual is just part of it. It's not really separate. Now, these ideas go a bit beyond what we're talking about here, but if you want to think about that more, I think it's interesting. There's a too long of a book, but a good book by a guy named Charles Taylor called A Secular Age, who chases this down a little bit more. That might be helpful if you're interested in this. 
The second reason that we don't want to elevate the spiritual over the physical is that God's redemptive plan includes the redemption, not the destruction of the earth as a continuation of his creative purposes. So God's plan includes the redemption of the physical world, not the destruction of the physical world. And we can misread apocalyptic texts in the New Testament to think that this world will be annihilated, just atomized, nuclear bombed, gone away forever, and God would, will create a new earth like ex nihilo, just out of nothing again. Well, that's not going to be the case. Um, instead, God is going to redeem all things. And, and we can only get to this annihilation of the present if we ignore some significant texts of Scripture, like Romans 8, 18 through 24, where Paul declares that the earth is groaning for redemption. And that redemption will only come as God's true sons, his true children, are recognized. And that happens on the final day. I'll say more about this in a moment. But the distinction, if if we are thinking of this whole planet as being exploded and gone forever, it just supports this wrong bifurcation between the spiritual and the physical when in fact God intends to redeem both. Number three, we need to recognize that the incarnation of Christ affirms the goodness of the body. The New Testament is adamant that Christ, God, was made flesh that Christ took flesh upon him. He was a genuinely true human and that at his resurrection, he was raised bodily to a glorified body. And Christ's body is what gives us hope in our resurrection because on the final day, we'll be like him for we will see him, right? We'll, we'll be just like Christ in our glorified bodies. And so the material physical world is affirmed both in Christ's incarnation and in his resurrection. He didn't just ascend from the grave as a spirit or something like that. Then number four, the Apostle Paul argues that what we do in the body actually matters. And I want to suggest that if we're tracking with a division between the spiritual and the physical, what happens in the body doesn't matter. And in fact, this, I think, is what Paul was addressing in his letter to the Corinthians. There were individuals in 1 Corinthians 6 that were saying, it's okay for us to sleep with a cult prostitute, and this kind of sexual immorality is okay, because just as food is made for the body, and the body is made for food, sex is made for the body, and the body for sex, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, if you're reading out of the ESV, you need to make a correction in 1 Corinthians 6 and put the quotation marks of Paul's quoting of the Corinthians after that phrase, and God will destroy both one and the other. That's not Pauline thought. That's Corinthian heresy based on Neoplatonism that says the physical is evil and we're going to escape this. Well, Paul goes on to say that's not true. And in fact, God will raise the body from the dead. So Paul has a pro-body theology that's combating an anti-body theology of the Corinthians. And Paul goes on to say that what you do in the body matters because it's going to be raised from the dead. Now, this is mysterious, but in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on to affirm that there is a connection between our physical bodies now and our bodies in the age to come in the resurrection. And that's why he can say Go on to labor in the Lord. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So what you do in this body and with respect to this planet and this earth actually matters. It's not in vain because there's a continuity between our body now and the body that will be raised 
from the dead. Now, we don't know how to talk about this because it's a mystery. I, I think the closest that we can do, just here in our imagination, is um, to, have, have you ever seen someone who's dying of cancer and, and you see them and you walk away thinking they're just a shell of who they used to be? Well, I think when, we, when we're in our glorified bodies, we're going to think our bodies now are just a shell of what we are. You know, so, so whatever distinction is there, it's hard to imagine it, but it's going to be bigger and better and brighter, but there's a fundamental continuity to it such that our worship now matters bodily. And so we shouldn't just separate the physical from the spiritual. Now, um, let me say that I think there are two potential objections to what I'm saying here. Um, but if it's the case that the spiritual and the physical aren't as separate as we think, then that will have implications for our worship, private and public, such that the body and what we do with our body matters in worship. And as we'll see, we'll have a whole lesson on how the body works, how we know things, and how rhythms and rituals and liturgies and body posture and all of these not only express, but also impact our knowing and our being in this world. So that's, that's to come. But I can think of two objections to this idea that what we do in the body matters and that God wants to redeem all things. Objection number one would be that we will, if we will spend eternity in heaven with God. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do in this life too much. And in fact, the gospel is primarily about going to heaven because we will spend all of eternity in heaven with God. Well, in answer to that objection, I would ask that individual to find texts of scripture that communicate that reality. And the fact is that I don't think a text of scripture could be found that talks about our eternal dwelling place being in heaven with God and particularly not as a disembodied spirit in heaven with God. Now, in conversations with individuals who hold this view, conversation about a bodily resurrection is affirmed but held in some tension because what's imagined is our future destiny is a home in heaven, is a disembodied soul forever singing God's praises around his throne or something like that. And when evidence is offered for this view, it's found only in terms of hymnody. Okay, so there's this quote attributed to a guy named A.W. Tozer. I don't know if he actually said it or not, but it goes something like this. Christians don't lie um, when they're talking. Instead, they go to church and sing. And it, his point being that often we sing lies that I think are detrimental to our, our theology. And we have to do our job as pastors to kind of rewrite some of these verses because they're otherwise great songs or just not to include them all together. So let me point a few out that might be influencing your theological imagination. Like away in a manger where we sing and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. You know, that's the purpose of the Christian life. Or when the roll is called up yonder, when his chosen one shall gather to their home beyond the skies. I've belted this out hundreds of times, you know, in tent revivals and all the rest. And it feels right. It's encouraging, but, but that's not quite right. Uh, just the title of this song is enough. When we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be, right? This earth is awful and thin and frail, so let's all get to heaven and be happy. Come Christian joins joined to sing. This is one of my favorite songs, but on verse three, on heaven's blissful shore, his goodness will adore singing forevermore. 
Alleluia, amen. Well, if you talk to the average person, if the vision of the gospel in, in life forever is sitting on a shore singing, that's a pretty crummy way to live the rest of your life. And I think that's maybe why sometimes the gospel that we share isn't convincing. My Jesus, I love thee. In mansions of glory and endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. Well, even there, I think, is building on a bad translation of a verse in John about Jesus, you know, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places, I think is the right translation. But father's house is building on this Old Testament idea of the world being a cosmic temple for God's dwelling place. So when, when God's house or dwelling is talked about, it's talked about in this earthly sense. And, and so even if we are leaning that way. I, I think there's a mistranslation there that gives us this false idea of, you know, the cattle on a thousand hills and we'll have our own mansions each with streets of gold and, um, and, and then we'll just come out to sing on together. And then even Amazing Grace, um, the sixth verse that thankfully is often not included, but with this kind of modern edition, it's been brought back. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. So, so this idea of this earth's dissolving, we're going to be up in heaven with God forever. Well, while the sentiment of these songs might be encouraging, rapturously so, we would be at great pains to connect their ideas to the biblical text and, and to the redemptive story. Um, and so, so I think we need to hear this objection, understand why it's there, because it's been just, it's infiltrated our hymnody, which then creates our theology, I think even more than preaching does. And we have a bad theological imagination of the future. And, and then I think it's just not convincing when we experience the genuine troubles of this life. What, what good is the gospel for me? Well, nothing until I'm up on a cloud someday. And even that seems kind of boring. So, so I think we need to reject that. The second objection would be that the, this earth, this planet will be destroyed and replaced by a new earth created out of nothing. Now, I don't think that this is as bad of a view, but I think it's still unhelpful because practically speaking, it still creates a division between the spiritual and the physical, and it removes any obligation on us or sense of obligation to live bodily as Christians now uh, being gospelized people, working out God's, our redemption in Christ wherever we go, because this whole thing's going to be blown up. Well, I think that's problematic for a few reasons. The first is that this, 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 this view that the earth will be destroyed fails to account for the apocalyptic language and imagery in the New Testament and Old Testament. So it reads the Bible literalistically, not understanding how apocalyptic literature works. And if you want to say that this isn't possible, that we could have language in the Bible talking about the earth, you know, the, the moon turning to blood and sun being darkened, and you have to take it literalistically. Well, I would encourage you to read the Exodus narrative when God parts the sea and then read the song of Moses that talks about those events is God's nostrils blow into the sea. And there's this poetic language. And if that's all we had, uh, we would need to say we can't trace and identify a one-for-one -one correlation, and we shouldn't be reading this literalistically. We should re be reading it according to its literary genre. 
while reading apocalyptic literature that conceives of God's approach to this world in earth-shattering terms doesn't designate a literal shattering of the earth, but designates the kind of fear that God's presence brings out. Okay, So we just don't have any other language for it. Number two, the view that this earth will be destroyed fails to account for the Old Testament and Jewish eschatological expectations for return and restoration rather than for destruction. The Old Testament and, and in Second Temple Judaism, there was not really this idea that the world will be destroyed. There was the idea that the world will be renewed. Third, the view that this earth will be destroyed fails to account for God's continued commitment to the restoration rather than the destruction of the earth. Now, if we start our gospel story with Abraham, we might be able to get here. But the gospel story starts with creation and then God's commitment in the Noahic covenant to, to continue to pursue the flourishing and redemption of his creation. So he did not give up on his original creative purposes. Four, the view that this earth will be destroyed fails to count for texts that clearly declare the restoration rather than the destruction of the earth. Think Romans 8 here, where creation is groaning to be redeemed. It, the, there's this positive thing that's going to happen to this planet, not a negative thing. And then finally, this view that the earth will be destroyed fails to account for connection between the created earth and created humanity. Both are participants in redemption and both are signified by what is old passing away to be replaced by what is new in terms of transformation rather than in terms of annihilation and a new creation. So from the very beginning, humanity is called Adam, from, who is made from the ground, Adama. Man and ground are intimately connected from the very beginning. And so some might read a text like Revelation 21.1, that says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and say, aha, I gotcha. You're wrong. This earth is going to be destroyed. Well, first I want to say, read this as apocalyptic language where the sea denotes confusion and chaos. And the fact that the sea is no longer there just simply means chaos is no longer there. But then secondly, read the Bible in light of the Bible and you'll hear this exact language used except of you. And, and you were not destroyed. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the text says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, or see, the new has come. Well, the old passing away doesn't involve annihilation or destruction but transformation. So when we start talking about God's redemptive plan in this world, when you hear texts like the old earth passed away, think of it in terms of transformation. The old world system is judged and condemned and removed and God's kingdom is now in play. God's system is here. That's what's represented by the new heaven and the new earth. Now we've got to move here, but um, I gave you a little chart that I adopted or adapted from a book that talks, has text of scripture indicating the saving activity of God and then the object of God's saving activity. And over and over again, all things, heaven and earth, man and creation are the objects of God's redemptive, not destructive work. So there's a comprehensive and holistic element to God's redemption that affirms embodiment is an important piece of the gospel message.
So let's get back to embodiment. I want to give you the logic of what I've been trying to trace that maybe got lost in the weeds. Uh, here's the logic of embodiment with connection to our worship. First, our entry point into worship is the gospel. So the gospel shapes our worship. It defines our worship. Thus, in our exploration of the, or thus our worship is evangelical. And in our explanation of the gospel, we came to see that God is concerned to redeem, reconcile, and restore all things in heaven and on earth. So if our worship should be defined and colored by the gospel, it needs to include the gospel that is a message of redemption and reconciliation of all things. Then number two, this is the step. If redemption is concerned with not just the immaterial part of man, but also the material part of man, evidenced by the hope of a bodily resurrection, as well as the created world, then our worship also ought to take into consideration both the body and the created world. By framing our corporate worship as both evangelical and embodied, we are simply recognizing that there is a physical side of being spiritual. That, that's the point here. Now, as we close in this last 30 seconds, I want to say that I think this short version of the gospel and the separation of the physical and the spiritual is what has led individuals to leave Baptist churches going in two directions. Because Baptist churches, I think, are having a struggle recovering this fuller vision of the gospel. So people leave on the one hand to go to um, the, the world's idea of life that also devalues the body and says that the true you is your inner you. So, so our culture says the spiritual is great, the physical doesn't matter. So if the physical ever disagrees with the spiritual, go with what you feel on the inside. So if your bodily, if, if your gender inside doesn't agree with your body outside, change your body. If, if your sexual attraction, it doesn't matter bodily what that is related to. It only matters who you are on the inside and what you want. The, the, the thing that's growing inside of you, if you don't want that, if, if, the, if that's going to be damaging to your emotional health, get rid of that physical thing because that doesn't matter. And it doesn't have personhood yet. So, so it doesn't matter. Okay, so in one direction, I've seen several friends and, and many in the conservative Christian world leave the Christian faith altogether, and I think the groundwork was already done for them by this shallow version of the gospel that, that doesn't have the redemption of the physical along with the spiritual. And then on the other side, the other migration out of the Baptist world is not as bad because it's still within Christianity, but there's a migration to the Anglican or um, Eastern Orthodox or Lutheran or Catholic church traditions because there, generally speaking, there is a concern for the physical side of being spiritual. And, and so there are individuals that I know who have left the Baptist tradition primarily because the the larger pattern of worship and faith just includes the spiritual, not the physical, and they're finding that over there. Well, I think there are some problems in those traditions as well, which is why I'm not in them, and, but I think that they have some good things that we can recover and retrieve is, that are in continuity with the larger Christian tradition. Uh, there are some footnotes there for things maybe you'd want to chase on those ideas. We have to end, but if you want to talk afterwards, I, I'm happy to chat in between times. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us and for your large and thick gospel that redeems all in all, that makes all in Christ redeemed and reconciled and renewed. And we pray that this gospel 
spread, that it would be received, and that it would change our lives. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.